Hello, I'm Jamie Bricker. And I'm Carol Bricker. And you're listening to Bricker by Bricker, a podcast to support parents with building productive partnerships between home and school. And throughout all of our podcasts, uh, we continue to really hope that we can help parents feel better connected to their child's learning and really to feel uh, more connected to your child's overall school experience. Well, I mean, there's no question that children who are happy and successful at school typically have well-informed and actively involved parents supporting them along their educational journey. Well, it's tough to argue that, Carol. We've spent the first part of 2020 talking about current educational pedagogy, and now, believe it or not, first term is fast approaching the finish line. So I think it's a great time to really discuss the learning skills portion of the report card. And some parents may be thinking, well, you know, why are we focusing on the learning skills? You know, aren't the grades important? And certainly grades are important. But when we look at it, it's the learning skills that will carry the child into adult life and their future careers. Well, you're quite right, Carol. The grade, of course, is what immediately catches everyone's eye. Oh, certainly. But uh, to me, like the learning skills are kind of those underlying key foundational pieces that are so important, as you say, moving forward. Because learning skills focus on independence, responsibility, initiative, collaboration, self-regulation, and organization. And once again, these are certainly lifelong skills. And these are also skills that are part of a child's executive functioning. And there may be people in our listening audience who have heard the term executive functioning, but don't really have a good understanding of what it really means. And when we talk about someone's executive functioning skills, we're really referring to that set of mental skills that include working memory, cognitive flexibility or flexible thinking and inhibitory control. So now let's look at these three skills and what they really mean for a child's learning. And beginning with working memory. And it's, I think, fair to say, Carol, in very simple terms, working memory is all about the ability to keep information in someone's mind so that they may use it in some capacity or another later on. Certainly. And when we look at it from an academic point of view, in math, it would be being able to keep those numbers in mind as as you're solving an equation or in reading, keeping the letters and their sounds and the words in mind as you put those sentences together to comprehend what the text is really saying. Oh, no question. And to extend those thoughts, I mean, kids with difficulties with working memory, that is obviously going to have a detrimental effect on their overall academics, but it's also going to affect skills such as organization, self-regulation, initiative, and responsibility. And then if we now look at what is cognitive flexibility, it's really that ability to be able to look at problems from different perspectives and different points of view and to look for multiple solutions. Well, and along that line, of course, if you have difficulties with cognitive flexibility, then you're going to find those real genuine problems in math that have multi-layers to them those are going to be a real challenge. And of course, reading comprehension, which of course is far beyond just decoding words, words, but to really understand what's coming from the text, that's also going to be a challenge. And related to that is kids with cognitive flexibility issues are going to find it difficult to really 
appreciate and recognize different perspectives and the different lenses that different characters bring to a written passage. Oh, certainly. And then if we look at it with regards to the impact that it could have on a child's uh, learning skills, then it really would affect that ability to collaborate in that group setting because you do need to be able to look at what people are saying from their perspective or their point of view. But then also it's going to have that impact on being able to self-regulate because you're not able to understand. Well, I think really appreciating other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. You know, that is just a key life skill for all of us. And then moving on to the third one, which is that inhibitory control. It really is that ability to stop before you respond on impulse or the ability to control your attention and your behavior. And then also being able to manage your emotions. And of course, this inhibitory control uh, is certainly going to have an effect both on academics as well as on learning skills. Uh, Academically, I think it would really impede the like the child's ability to really check their work mm-hmm. and to kind of pause and go back and, you know, kind of go through it again. And when solving problems, it's going to really cause a challenge when it comes to, once again, looking at the different options and not just kind of jumping at the first choice. And I think of kids, say, with math questions that have multiple choice answers, it's, it's very easy to kind of think, oh, the answer is obviously there mm-hmm. and I'll just pick the first one. Or looking at things critically. And and really that critical thinking, because you are going to take things just at face value. But then when we look at the learning skills, you know, again, this is going to affect the child's ability to collaborate with others, to organize their work as they're going to rush through it, their initiative, their ability to begin their work. And then also that responsibility piece, because they're responsible for completing their work. And again, would have that impact on their self-regulation as well. All right. Well, next, let's look at what do we actually know about executive functioning? And I think it's really important to stress from the get-go that a, a difficulty with executive functioning is not a diagnosis of any sort of a learning disability. And I think it's important to really kind of clarify that. However, uh, quite often people with a learning disability or ADHD do in fact have difficulties with executive functioning. And I think a really biggie for me, Carol, and I know it has applied numerous times throughout our educational careers, it's been reinforced so vividly, that it's important to know that difficulties with executive functioning have like nothing, nothing to do with one's intelligence. But I think I just to kind of backtrack a bit when we say that people with a learning disability or ADHD could also have difficulties with executive functioning, that you know, difficulties with an executive functioning can be comorbid with other diagnoses or conditions as well. But I think for the purpose of this podcast, we're really just specifically focusing on difficulties with executive functioning and not looking at those other diagnoses because they would have strategies specific to them that we're not going to necessarily Well, you're right. In, in real life, there's often multiple layers to these types of situations that we're not addressing at this point. You're right. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important also to look at what has research said around executive functioning skills and what are some of the causes for people who have difficulties in this area. And so they've done research using MRIs of brains 
And for those people who do have difficulties with their executive functioning, the MRIs have showed that that part of the brain that's responsible for this is slower to develop. And then another thing that they've found is that there seems to be a genetic component to it. Well, as with many other things, when it comes to learning, there is clearly an environmental component uh, to executive functioning challenges. And I mean, let's just look at some of the, the common environmental issues. I mean, stress, lack of sleep, poor nutrition, uh, lack of exposure to language at home on a, on a regular basis. And mm -hmm. by that, of course, we mean kind of the, you know, the richer language and yes. so on. And I think overall, unfortunately, a, a lot of kids uh, face the challenges of just low quality of caregiving. And those kind of in combination or on their own can certainly impact executive function. Mm -hmm. Well, and when we look at it, anybody is going to have difficulties with their executive functioning when they are stressed or there's lack of sleep or they haven't eaten well, like that impacts all of us. So it has a heightened impact for those those people who do have difficulties. But what they've also found is that executive functioning develops over time. So as a child ages and moves into adulthood, the impact of these issues may lessen or actually become non-existent. So then moving on, as a parent, how am I going to know if my child does have difficulties with executive functioning? So some of the things to watch for if you're concerned about your child's executive functioning is that they are having trouble starting or completing tasks, or they might have difficulties prioritizing what needs to be done first, or when you tell them something, they forget what they've just heard, or if they're reading, they've forgotten what they've read. Well, and to piggyback on when you mentioned difficulty prioritizing tasks, I think another biggie is difficulty following directions, mm -hmm. or just the kind of the proper sequence as to how something's going to unfold. And I know there can certainly too be some real anxiety or, or panic when rules or routines that they're familiar with and comfortable with, when those change, that can really cause some angst. And related to that is they can have some real challenges and difficulty switching the, their focus from one task that they've really been, you know, centered on or working on and being asked to switch to something else. That can be a challenge. And also really getting just over-emotional or fixated on certain things mm -hmm. and having just trouble letting go in general. Oh, certainly. Or, you know, then we come to like the organization piece and the responsibility. So they could have difficulties organizing their thoughts or their work, difficulties keeping track of their belongings, or also just that whole time management piece, have difficulties knowing how much time to spend on things and, and when it, we need to move on. So those are some of the key kind of look for's. But now, of course, it begs the question as parents, like, what can we do to help? Mm -hmm. And uh, let's start with working memory. Uh, for an example, if you notice that your child has difficulty following multi-step directions, and I think, Carol, as parents, we can all relate to those oh. you know, times you tell your child, would you go up to your room, put your shirts in the drawer, hang up your pants or whatever, put, their, put your books on the shelf, and then come on back downstairs and we can all watch your favorite program type thing. Then, however, you give your child a few minutes when you go upstairs to check, 
well, only the shirts got put away and they're looking at their books, but kind of nothing else was followed through on. And as a parent, I know that gets very frustrating. Now, obviously, this scenario was a bit of an exaggeration because there's a well, lot of so. instructions. <laughs> I want to stress that was I a think lot I'd have of instructions. Doing it. <laughs> yeah, yes, you would. I'm not, yeah, you've proven that, as would I. As would I. So, really, the first thing you need to be aware of is your child's ability to hold information in that working memory. And if they can only remember one or two things, then really breaking down the task into small manageable steps. So give them two things that you want them to do and then have them come back and check in with you when they're finished. And then that way you can give them the next couple of things to do. And then, of course, it's not stressful for either you know, mom or dad or the child. And you can reinforce the positive. Mm -hmm. It's just so much better. Yeah. And it's the same kind of premise when it comes to anything with homework or projects from school or things like that. Break them down into small pieces or kind of, you know, these incremental steps that we need to do this tonight. We'll do this tomorrow and so on. And even not necessarily even having to tell them what you're going to do the next day. But, you know, today this is our focus and that's all we're worrying about today. And then you know, the next day or maybe, you know, before dinner, we're doing this. And then after dinner, we're going to do do this. And, and to piggyback to on it. that thought, Carol, I think it's really great for, frankly, all learners of all ages to understand we go through a process. There's mm-hmm. kind of an initial rough draft where we're brainstorming ideas and then we get into editing and then we get to our finished product. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And then along kind of that line is is having those routines or structures, because when kids know what the routine is, then they don't need to focus on it on their working memory. And that routine becomes automatic. But the big thing as well is to be consistent and patient as you're you know, establishing these routines and sometimes providing those verbal or visual cues will also help your child internalize that those routines. And I'm sure you'd agree, Carol, another biggie with a kind of a to-do list is to have it in a prominent location. And I know in past podcasts, we've talked about, you know, the refrigerator doors about as prominent as it gets. Um, But you're so right that a kind of a really important correlate of all this is these routines have to be followed on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and kind of made a focus. And then over time, as you say, they just become an embedded part of the child's daily life. Mm -hmm. And don't assume because you've posted a to-do list that your child's just going to follow it. You need to be modeling how to use it and, and to, uh, you know, so that your child can develop that independence and using it themselves. But then if we look at some things that are more on a kind of fun basis, playing games like concentration or memory games really help to strengthen that visual memory or playing card games like Crazy Eight, Uno, Go Fish, because your child has to keep the rules of the game in mind, as well as remember what cards they have, what cards someone else has played. So there's a lot of skill development there as well with regards to working memory. And of course, also to always really encourage active reading and to encourage your child to use highlighters and sticky notes. Now, of course, depending on the the book, we have to make sure that we're not writing right in the book. I want to stress that. (laughs) School libraries, et cetera, would get upset, understandably. But to really use, that's where highlighters are great and and stickies to really kind of make a quick reference when they're looking Mm -hmm. back for something. But also to get into the habit of home of, right, really talking out loud and, you know, and asking these rich questions 
as they're reading. Well, that also kind of really stimulates mm-hmm. their working memory. And then also making tasks multi-sensory. So if they're reading, writing something down, or as you say, talking out loud, if you're wanting them to to learn about the family chores, you know, walk through the house and say, you know, I'd like you to do this or I'd like you to do that. Well, I know myself when I'm reading for information, I need to read with a pen and paper right there. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Or it's forgotten. Yeah. And it also making connections for kids. So finding a way to connect that information really helps to to form and to retrieve it from long term memory. So things like mnemonics are something that can be really helpful to help that child remember that information. Well, whenever I hear the term mnemonics, Carol, I automatically go back many, many years to when I was in about grade four and the teacher gave us a mnemonic to help remember the order of all of the planets heading out from the sun. And the mnemonic was a ridiculous thing I'll never forget. And it was man very early made jars stand up nearly perpendicular. And of course, the first letter of each word aligned with a planet. Mm -hmm. So mnemonics are, I think the kind of the sillier, the better, because then you remember them forever. Oh, (laughs) Yes. And I mean, visualization is also huge and it really helps kids develop their working memory. And I also think, though, for any child, it's really important for parents and educators alike to really reinforce that they should be creating a picture in in their mind as they're reading anything. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the joy of reading, how two people can read the same passage, but have a different mental picture. And I think that really needs to be reinforced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there has been some research done with regards to uh, different techniques with re- with brain training. However, there really has been no concrete evidence that there's any long-term benefits to to that those training methods. Now let's look at cognitive flexibility, or in other words, for it, our flexible thinking. And this is really embedded in the whole notion of really encouraging silly jokes and puns, what we would call kind of wordplay. For example, like a a really dumb riddle here, quote, why is an elephant always ready to travel? Because he always has his trunk. Ha ha ha. But I think it's important (laughs) there. I know you love that one. That's one of my better ones, Carol. But it's important. It's a great opportunity there to really stress there are, in fact, two very different meanings for the word trunk. And then, of course, encourage your child to come up with their own funny mm-hmm. wordplay. Or, you know, playing a game like what is this, where you take an ordinary object and come up with as many different things that you can pretend it is or different ways you can use it. Because this really not only encourages that flexible thinking, but it also encourages that creativity. And then when we're looking at different books that that kids can be reading. Amelia Bedelia is a great book for wordplay because she tends to take everything very literally in the book. And so it gives that great opportunity to talk about ways she could do things differently. And along that line, make up new rules for games. Maybe a game that uh, your your child and yourself have have enjoyed playing Mm -hmm. for years. That's great. Let him or her modify a few things. And along that line, let them and encourage them to find more than one way to do everyday tasks. As long as it's safe, as we always say, as long as as it's safe, safe. you know, let them try a different way. And then also involving your kids in making some decisions at home where there can be multiple 
multiple outcomes. So, you know, what could we have for lunch today and and get them to come up with a couple of different options. Or when you're going shopping, you know, where should we go shopping today to really get them to be thinking of and, and making them much more flexible in their thinking. But it's also so empowering. Oh, like certainly. mom and dad are asking my opinion. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then the bottom line, as with everything, is when you notice your child is is being flexible, to really reinforce that you've noticed it, and to also praise that as well. Now let's look at inhibitory or self control skills, and they also get broken down into several different areas. And the key areas under this kind of Heading are focus and attention, impulsivity, and emotional control. And I'll begin looking at focus and attention. For for starters, really reduce the visual distractions. Oh, definitely. And I know as educators, we do that all the time mm-hmm. at school if, if a child needs that for their yeah. learning benefit. And certainly the same thing can be done at home very easily. And as we've mentioned earlier, provide one task at a time, break it into smaller pieces. And that would apply to homeworks, projects, whatever. And also, I think a biggie, and I I know when I was a young kid, well, I think you'd agree, Carol, it probably still applies to me, but I very much needed a break. Mm -hmm. I I give it my best shot, but I very much needed a break. I was not a kid who could do a sustained amount of work. And please don't laugh right now, Carol. I know (laughs) some things never change. Some things never change. But you see, I need these breaks. I'm not being lazy. I need these breaks. You need these breaks, these attention breaks. So, and another thing that we don't often consider is the lighting in the home. And, And in most cases, you know, there isn't fluorescent lighting in homes, but it really can have an impact on a child's ability to, to focus and attend. So, really providing those opportunities for that natural light or using just regular lights as well. And then another thing that really can impact is that physical activity. So giving kids those opportunities to have a break, to get physical, and and sometimes even before they're going to begin a challenging task, it's good to have that physical break so that then when they go to do whatever that task is, they can be much more focused on it. Well, and in terms of breaks, I think it's important to have honest discussions with your child about the whole idea of what really paying, paying attention, attention means. Mm-hmm. It's a term we throw out there, but yeah. what does it mean? And, and then, what course, does it look like? And what does it look like? Yeah. And frankly, what does it sound like yeah. at times? And as you say, to have those real attention breaks and embed them in what they're doing. And I think it's really awesome at kind of that metacognitive level mm-hmm. if your child realizes that he or she needs a break. Yeah. And and they also realize that a break is fundamentally different than work. You know, that kind of distinction. But also, once again, during that break, you can play like a quick memory game or whatever to kind of recharge their battery. Yeah. Yeah. And that also helps to improve that focus and attention. And then if we look at the next subset, it's that impulsivity. And really, one thing to do if your child tends to be impulsive is to really outline what are what are those behavioral expectations for upcoming situations? You know, what does the behavior look like? What does it sound like? And then also outlining, you know, what is it that they're going to be doing while they're at that activity or in that situation. Well, as we mentioned in previous uh, podcasts, things like how does having dinner and a chat at your family table, as you've done hundreds of times, 
versus going to your grandparents for Christmas dinner, mm-hmm. how does that uh, differ? Oh, yeah. They... And in fairness to your child, you should have that discussion long before you say hello to grandma. Well, you know? or long before yeah. somebody gets thrown at the table. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, very true. And, and related to that is that whole idea of help your child develop a, a real sense of self-awareness and to really get a sense of what is the appropriate social behavior in different situations. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, and this is a tough one, it's a tough one for people of all ages, but ultimately helping your child develop a true sense of empathy and to really start to kind of pause and think, how does this impact someone else and how is that person feeling? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, coming back to having those discussions with your kids, talk about the difference between impulsive and non-impulsive behavior and look at those real life situations where maybe your child has been impulsive before and then act them out or, you know, draw them and show ways that they could have reacted to that situation in a less impulsive manner. And of course, exercise, always a biggie. Help reduce anxiety, aggression, and hyperactivity. I mean, that's just a win, win, win. You know, you can do a lot worse than having a a break and incorporating some exercise, regardless of the particulars. But also it's important to really, I think, freely discuss with your child that we all get impulsive at times. Mm-hmm. We're all humans. We, we are all tend to be that way sometimes. But I think it's an important distinction of just kind of you're impulsive, but you're not hurting anyone else. You're not hurting yourself. You're just kind of, you know, taking a break or whatever the case may be versus if your impulsivity is harmful or hurtful or disrespectful to someone else or, in fact, to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to our last category, that emotional control. And really, it's it's all about parents modeling that really healthy emotional self-management and, you know, resisting those temptations to have that emotional outburst with your child because the behaviors you model are the behaviors that your child is going to replicate. So if if you uh, find yourself engaged in a situation with your child where you are feeling emotionally heightened, that's a great time to kind of step back, take a break, and then be able to come back at it when you're feeling more rational. Because when we talk respectfully to our kids, we teach our kids to talk respectfully. No, excellent point. And I'm just kind of thinking back, Carol, like years ago uh, when our kids were younger, that we have to always be respectful and accepting that your child's feelings, they may kind of be in total misalignment to kind of the situation right now. Like, in other words, they're very upset about something, but we're in a rush to get to the hockey Mm -hmm. room. We're in a rush to get to the grocery store. Well, we have to kind of pause, as you say, and really embrace those moments and really kind of teach them that we all have bad feelings, recognize their feelings, validate them but also kind of model and discuss for them that we all have those at times we can work through them and things will improve. And of course, underneath all of this is kind of the foundational piece of the growth mindset. And I think that's a really important part of it, Mm -hmm. but don't, but don't minimize their feelings. I think it's really a key. Oh, definitely. And, and, Another piece of that is don't punish their feelings, because when we punish kids when they're upset about something, then we're teaching them to repress their emotions, 
which then eventually are going to erupt. So it's really, you know, as you say, teaching your kids how to process their emotions because they are, our emotions aren't bad. They're just part of being human. Absolutely. And I think for all of us, we don't have a, any choice whatsoever about how we're feeling, about mm-hmm. what's in our, in our emotional yep. core, where we do have a lot of say and a lot of control is in how we respond, yeah. how we display how we're feeling. And I think to make that distinction that a lot of times as adults, how we act is not at all how we're feeling. No, oh, no. You know? But I, and I think yeah. to kind of Yeah, there's really a lot of times you're kind of holding it in and, and then carrying through. But then it's all about talking about emotions and feelings and all the different kinds of emotions that people can feel, what you know the behavior looks like when you're feeling that way. What are those facial expressions and that body language? Because kids need to be able to identify the emotions that they're feeling at a particular time in order to be able to follow through on some strategies that they could use. But then also... They need to be able to recognize those emotion or emotions in others based on body language, facial expression, and that sort of thing. Oh, no question. Recognize it in themselves, recognize it in others, and the combination helps build more meaningful and beneficial long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. And then, as I said, you know, it's identifying those coping strategies. So once a child understands their emotions, then recognizing the different things that they could be doing when they do become dysregulated. And and they really have to be things that the child identifies as being successful strategies, not just what an adult is saying they could be doing. Well, we certainly encourage our listeners to really try to implement some of the strategies we have just been discussing if they feel that their child requires additional support with developing his or her learning skills and or executive functioning skills. Uh, but it's also, I think, important that if you if you are having difficulties or your child is having difficulties in this area, to really connect with the child's teacher as well, because they might be using strategies at school that could be successful for you at home or you know, also, you could be doing some things at home that are really successful for your child that could be implemented at school for the child's success. You raise an excellent point because we both experienced numerous times when a child may be struggling at school, we have a parent in for them for a meeting and the parent says, well, he or she doesn't display any of this at home mm-hmm. or vice versa. Yes. So you're absolutely right. Bottom line is the more consistency, I think you'd agree, Carol, we can have between home and school. That is great for, you know, the child, like things don't, the landscape doesn't suddenly change when they go home to school. If that is consistent, then the more successful your child will be. Mm -hmm. And if our listeners have any questions, they can always email us at info at jamiebricker.com or contact us through our website at brickerbybricker.com. And as always, we encourage our listeners to share our podcast with other families they think might be interested. And also a reminder that you can follow us on Voice Ed Radio or any of the other platforms that we're on, such as iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast. And we look forward to connecting with you next time on Bricker. Bye, Bricker. Bye, Bricker.